0: Amen. Thank you, guys. Well, go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me one last time to the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. We last left off with Jonah outside of the city. Uh, He is tailgating, right? He is uh, waiting for some insane destruction to happen. That's what he's wanting. He's tailgating outside. And he is rooting for one of the largest cities in the world at that time to be destroyed. I want to read this section and we'll dive right in after we ask God's blessing on our time this morning. Jonah chapter 4, beginning in verse 5, reading through the end of the chapter. Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. And there he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant and grew it up over Jonah to be a shade over his head, to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And Jonah said, I have good reason to be angry, even to die. And the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't even know the difference between their right and left hand as well as many animals. Father, we we've been just undone by this book and and the way that you just ordained that we would be studying this book while we are studying gentle and lowly and just it's been a semester of just seeing your grace and absolutely being undone by it and being being attacked by it. Even as we're going to see today, your grace goes after Jonah. It will not relent. It will not stop. You pursue and hunt him down and chase him down through questions, through using his circumstances, through any means necessary in order to show him the beauty of grace. And it would be so easy to think that, of course, grace is beautiful and we love it and we want it and Why do we need a lesson in grace? And yet we have found from this study that we are way more like Jonah than we would care to admit. Wanting to receive grace from you and then instantly turning around and not wanting other people to receive grace. So Father, I ask that you would grant us grace in this moment. To see grace for what it is. To see the gospel for what it is. To see ourselves for who we are. To see you Even as we sang earlier, to behold you, our God, our King, our Sovereign, and to see that you made a a way for us to not just be your slaves, but to be your sons. To not just be those who are outcast and brought in, but staying far off, but to be those who are brought in and can stay at the dinner table with our Heavenly Father. God, that's what we long for. We want to see Christ and savor his goodness. So help us to do that. Father, just take away the distractions of being outdoors, of the the cars, of the sun. Just take away the distractions so that we can focus on your grace and on the gospel. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to see three lessons in grace this morning. Three amazing, profound lessons in grace this morning. But what I want to do is, before we get to those lessons, I want to just go through the text. I want you to see as we go through the text, line by line, word by word, what's taking place in this crazy, bizarre ending. And then when we get to the end, we'll study these three lessons in grace together. So let's start in verse 5. Jonah goes out of the city, and he sits east of the city, which west would be heading closer to Jerusalem. So going east is going further away from Jerusalem. So this, this man does not want to go back to Jerusalem because in going back to Jerusalem, he's going to go tell the people of God that God spared their enemies, that God spared a nation that absolutely hated Yahweh uh, and destroyed anybody who did not follow their own city and their own country rules and laws. So he doesn't want to go back to Jerusalem and tell his people that God saved their enemies. He sits east of the city and he makes a shelter for himself. Now, he is in the Iraqi desert. There's nothing that's growing out there. I just picture Jonah, he's angry, right? Super, super angry, just mumbling under his breath, just maybe cursing under his breath, walking along. Just you know, picture uh, a new hope, right? Uh, you got C-3PO and you got R2-D2 just wandering, tattooing. Right? This is worse than tattooing just wandering in sand, and where are we going? And I just picture, you know, maybe he, gets, he finds a rock. Will this be sheltered? Can I dig under this rock? He finds a leaf, holds it up to the sun. Will this? There's nothing out there for him to find shade. He's trying. He makes a shelter out of who knows what, maybe a dead carcass of some sort, and he sits under it. But it's not good shade, because God's going to give him better shade. And he wants to wait and see what's going to happen. Remember, God said in 40 days, I'm going to destroy Nineveh. Nineveh repents. God relents. And Jonah's wondering, maybe Nineveh's repentance will be short-lived. Maybe they'll repent for 20 days and then go back to their sin, and then God will bring judgment. Nineveh maybe will stop their repentance, and therefore, God will still judge them. Jonah's waiting to see their destruction. He wants to see them destroyed. So verse 6. As Jonah is waiting to see the destruction of Nineveh, the Lord God appointed, just like he did with the fish, he appoints a plant. He grows a plant. He grew it up over Jonah to be shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. I don't know what kind of a plant this is. There are a lot of commentaries that say it's a certain form of a plant. I don't know what kind of plant it is. I don't know the name of it but I do know what this plant represents. This plant is God's grace towards Jonah. I'm going to give you a little bit of a respite from the, the sun. I'm going to give you shade. I'm going to give you a, a place of comfort. Jonah doesn't deserve it. He's done nothing to earn it. And yet God graciously says, I'm going to give you shade. And Jonah's response, middle of verse six, Jonah was extremely happy. Maybe your translations might say greatly Happy. Great. It's that word, the second most often used word in this book, uh, second to Yahweh's name uh, himself. He's greatly happy. He's super, super happy. What is he happy about? He's happy about a plant that has grown. He's not rejoicing or happy about 600,000 people in Nineveh repenting and not receiving judgment. He's just happy about a plant growing up over him. You just have to wonder his his own mental process right here. I think he has self-pity. I mean, if 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 we can get inside Jonah's head, here's what I think is happening. Jonah, sulking, angry, probably cursing and muttering under his breath, walks out into the, the east side of the Iraqi desert, and he is just sun beating down, can't find shade anywhere, just angry as you could possibly be. And then God decides to give him a plant. And he is ecstatic, probably just saying, you know what, everything has been going wrong for me. I was just on a boat that hit a supernatural storm. I was swallowed by a fish and spit up and I stink. And the people that I want to be destroyed aren't being destroyed. Everything's going wrong for me. And now all of a sudden, one thing's going right. I don't know if you've ever been there in your day where that one thing can turn it around. Oh, you find the parking spot at Target. And you're like, yes, finally, things are looking up for me. He's excited. But God instantly decides to destroy that excitement, in verse 7. But God appoints. So He appoints a plant, and then He appoints a worm. Verse 7 When dawn comes the next day, and it attacked the plant, and the plant withered. The word for worm there is in the singular. You can see it. He attacked a worm and it, not he attacked worms and they. So here's just one very happy fat worm, right? This plant has grown up out of the ground supernaturally over Jonah's head and this one plant, this one plant is going to be eaten by this one worm appointed by God. I don't know how God communicates these things to the worms, but I just I got a picture in my mind, little worm just sitting there, I'm going to die in the heat. Why am I even here? God says I have a job for you. Go eat that plant. The whole thing? How am I going to fit the whole thing in my body? Just trust me, I'm God. I can do this for you. Eat the whole thing. He just starts eating and eating. It's kind of like the, the hungry caterpillar, right? Just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. Just enormous worm. And then the worm says, I did my job. Now what? And God says, that's it. You can die. <laughs> you're done. Your job, your job was to eat the plant. Thank you very much. Now you're done. He died a very content and happy and satisfied worm. He attacks the plant, literally the word there is for the word for a, an army going into battle. He is just, uh, with a voracious appetite, going after this plant, and it's gone. It withers away. So here is Jonah in his self-pity, saying, nothing goes right for me, and then all of a sudden this plant grows, and he goes, yes, it's looking up, this is great, and then all of a sudden the plant's gone, and he goes, see, everything's bad again nothing. I can't catch a break with God. On top of everything that's gone wrong, now I lose the plant. By the way, all of this is God's doing, right? He's appointing everything. It's all God's doing in preparation for a gracious assault on Jonah's self-righteousness. So, the plant's gone. Verse 8, God's going to appoint one more thing. He's going to appoint a scorching east wind. So, the sun comes up. God says, let's bring A scorching east wind. So it was hot, now it's really hot. The sun beats down on Jonah's head so that he becomes faint and he begs with all of his life, with all of his soul, to die, saying, Death is better to me than life itself. Jonah is a tad bit dramatic here, but again, we can ask the question what is it that you're wanting that you're not getting? What are you getting that you're not wanting? Why are you so angry? Why are you so sad? Why are you so depressed? He wants to die. If you remember in uh, 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah asked to die. It's not an uncommon thing for the people of God to be despairing to the point of, uh, sorrowful to the point of death. But Elijah's reason for wanting to die was because he thought he was the only believer left in the world. No one else is believing my message. Nobody else is getting saved. Would you just take me home? Jonas is the exact opposite, right? Jonas says, everybody's getting saved and I hate this and I want to die. And he's a prophet. He's a missionary. This man is so backwards and messed up. So he says, death to me is better than life itself. And then God asks him another question, another beautiful, loving, gracious response of our Father. God can say so much with a question. Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? We talked last week about God asking Adam and Eve questions, God asking Cain questions. God loves to draw out the hearts of the people that he cares deeply about, to to ask them, to show them what repentance would look like. Jonah doesn't get it. Jonah says, I have good reason to be angry. I have good reason even to die. I have good reason to die. Right here, right now, I have good reason. Yes, I have good reason. And the Lord in his kindness says, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and their left hand, as well as many animals? Now, verse 10 and 11 are just the crux of this passage. We've seen God appointing a plant, God appointing a worm, God appointing a wind. The plant grows, the worm eats, the wind blows. Jonah rejoices over the growing plant. Jonah gets angry at the wind, but we don't see his response to when the worm eats the plant. We don't have his reaction. So God's telling us what his reaction was. You had compassion when that plant was gone. We got Jonah's reaction when the the plant was grown. We got Jonah's reaction when the wind comes. But God gives us what Jonah's reaction was when the plant was eaten. It's literally the word, pity uh, is the word for the flowing of your eyes, weeping. You wept over the plant. You had compassion. Some of your translations might say pity, compassion, pity. You were weeping over the loss of this plant. Your eyes were flowing with tears. That's literally the, the word. It's a graphic picture of a word. And what God is going to do is God's going to reason with Jonah here. You had no investment in that plant whatsoever. You did nothing to cultivate it. You didn't cause it to grow. Shouldn't I have pity and compassion on a people that I've cultivated, that I've caused to grow? You had compassion on a singular plant. You did not have compassion on 600,000 people. Shouldn't I have compassion on 600,000 people? If you can have compassion on one little plant. This is what's known in logic as an a fortiori argument, an argument from the lesser to the greater, a fortiori to the stronger, to the greater. You're having compassion, you're weeping over the loss of this tiny little plant. Shouldn't I weep and have compassion over a people group in a city that would be destroyed if it weren't for the gospel going to them? Jonah, if you have compassion for the lowest life value, a plant, shouldn't I have compassion for the highest life value of people there is life that matters more than others right plants less than animals animals less than people God says shouldn't I have compassion on people if you feel that you can have compassion on plants by the way Jonah you only loved the plant for what it could do for you you only cared about that plant because it could do something for you I'm caring about these people who are my enemies they haven't done anything for me and yet I'm still caring for them. That's all in verse 10 and verse 11. This is God's rational, reasonable response. And then he adds to it. Shouldn't I have compassion not only on people in general, but 120,000 that don't know their right hand from their left? That's a reference to children. That's a reference to kids. Shouldn't I take care of them? Shouldn't I give grace to the children? There's a beautiful... Uh, principle in all of the scriptures that if these kids were to die they would instantly go to heaven that's biblical Uh, all babies uh, who die or uh, children in a mentally handicapped state who die or adults in mentally handicapped state who aren't able to understand he says they can't even understand right hand from their left other passages would say they can't even know between good and evil they don't know enough to discern to choose good or to choose evil So God says, look at these little kids and look at the animals. You had compassion over a singular plant. Should I not have compassion on all of these people, including their children and their animals? Jonah wants God to wait the whole 40 days. God is saying, shouldn't I relent now? Shouldn't I call off the destruction now? I can just stop it now because they've repented. They they have turned with saving faith But Jonah wants, no, 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 don't do that. Wait. Jonah wants God to wait. Wait the full 40 days because maybe they're going to stop. Maybe they're going to turn back to their sin. Maybe you can still judge them. God asks a question and we don't get Jonah's response. This is how the book ends. There is no response. Should I have compassion? And there's no response. We don't know what Jonah's going to say. It's a very bizarre ending. I wonder as we go through it, I wonder if you've up on the lessons of grace that are seen here. I want to tackle these lessons of grace as we go through these verses, and then I want to conclude the book together by asking the questions that God asked Jonah, because I think that God's asking through Jonah to us this morning the exact same questions. But first, let's start with these lessons. Let's start with the plant. Let's call it a weed, since it's a W, and the other words are going to be Ws. Let's learn the lesson of the weed There is, number one, a lesson from the weed, that grace, these are all three lessons on grace, the lesson from the weed is that grace is for sinners, not saints. Grace is for sinners, not saints. This is the lesson of the weed. Why? Because the weed is a plant that grew up by God's appointing over Jonah when Jonah did nothing to deserve it, did nothing to earn it, Jonah does not deserve it. In fact, he deserves death, right? Jonah deserves to be struck down and destroyed, not given comfort. And yet Jonah is given grace because grace isn't for saints, right? Grace is for guilty people. And so Jonah is given grace. He deserved judgment chapter one. He had received mercy and he was glad for it, but then he doesn't give that same mercy and grace to other people. So here he's given grace again. One author says it this way, God knows the totality of the human heart and yet this knowledge does not exhaust his love, his patience, or his kindness, but instead he continues to take his rebellious children and hold them by the hand. Grace is for sinners, not saints. And in fact, we've seen four really unexpected recipients of God's grace in this whole book. If you go all the way back to the very beginning, In chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, grace is going to be given to wicked sinners, right? God tells Jonah, go tell Nineveh that they can be saved. Go tell them, give them a message. They will be destroyed if they do not repent. So grace is given to Nineveh, wicked sinners. Grace is also given in verse 3 of chapter 1 to disobedient saints, right? Jonah decides, I'm going to go the exact opposite direction. I'm not going to obey And yet God doesn't strike him down right there. He gives him grace. He allows a storm to happen. He appoints a storm. He appoints a fish. He takes care of Jonah. He lets him live. Then grace is given in chapter three to repentant sinners. Wicked sinners are given the gift of grace and that enables them to repent. And then finally in chapter four, grace is also given to unrepentant sinners. God is graciously giving Jonah a gift even though he doesn't deserve it. He hasn't repented. Grace is given to sinners, not saints. That's the lesson of the weed. What about the lesson of the worm? There's a lesson in grace that we see from the weed, but we also see a lesson in grace from the worm. And the lesson in grace from the worm is that God's grace is for people, not things. God's grace is for people, not things. God says to Jonah, you wept over a thing, over a plant. You became attached to it. You had compassion on it. You wept when it went away. I have that same compassion for people, not plants. Because my grace is given to people, not to its, not to things. God's saying, I, I weep over Nineveh, right? You had compassion, a word that means the flowing of the eyes with tears. You pitied the plant. I pity the people. I weep over their lostness. Write down Isaiah chapter 63, verse 9. Uh, the Bible says in Isaiah 63, verse 9, that God is, affli- is afflicted in our afflictions. God is afflicted in our afflictions. He weeps with those who weep. He mourns with those who mourn. He has pity on people. He does that regularly. In fact, the life of Jesus shows us this. It, demonstrate th- it demonstrates this for us. B.B. Warfield, in his really helpful book, The Emotional Life of Our Lord, said that by far the most typical emotional aspect of Jesus's life is that he's moved with compassion. That's what you see most often in Jesus's life. He's moved with compassion. The Bible records Jesus weeping 20 times for every one time that he's laughing. He weeps for people that don't know him. He's attached to us in our suffering. How insane is it to meditate on the fact that the God of the universe cares about you and me so much that he's attached in our afflictions, he's afflicted, he weeps with us, he has pity on us. That's why the psalmist says, what is man that you're mindful of us? Why would you even care about us? You notice us, you take care of us. But Jonah just cares about things. Grace isn't for things, it's for people. But Jonah cares more about the plant than the whole city that's on their way to hell. Jonah's okay with the whole city going to hell as long as there's shade for him. By the way, I hope you see the danger and the cancer of materialism. Materialism, loving things, being focused on things, is a danger and a cancer When you start to love things, you stop loving people. When you're storing up treasure in this world, you fail to store up treasure in the next. Jonah focuses only on the thing, the plant. I just want that plant. And it goes away overnight, right? By the way, your stuff has more in common with Jonah's plant than you would like to think. It's going to go away before you know it. It's just going to disappear, right? Including our very lives. There are vapors in the wind. So We see the lesson of the weed is that God's grace is for sinners, not saints. We see the lesson of the worm is that God's grace is for people, not things. Finally, number three, the lesson of the wind. The lesson of the wind. The wind comes and Jonah's angry because he's not being given grace for that plant to exist and And God's going to say, wait a second, you're angry that I'm not giving you the comfort that you want right now, but I've given it to others in Nineveh. The lesson there from the wind is that grace is for others, not just you. Grace is for others, not just you. It's not a monopoly of you receiving grace. Grace is for others, not just you. Jonah wants to be given grace, but Jonah doesn't want anybody else to be given grace. We see this in the New Testament as well. Remember in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 4, we read it a few months ago. Jesus gets up, reads the scroll of Isaiah at a synagogue in Nazareth. And the scroll, the portion of Isaiah says that God's going to give grace to Gentiles and Jews. And Jesus kind of preaches on that to say, hey, remember when Elijah was a prophet? There were a lot of Jewish people that needed help, but he didn't go to any of them. He only went to the Gentiles. And remember what their reaction was in that synagogue? They'd try to take him out and throw him off the cliff. They want Jesus dead. Why? Because Jesus said, grace is for others, not just for you. I'm giving grace not to Jewish people alone, I'm giving grace to everyone, to Gentiles as well. There are so many people who feel the same way, whether it's an ethnic group, whether it's a, a national group, a country. They think we deserve blessing and others don't. We do that individually too. There are people around us that just have no idea what they should be living for, right? They don't know what the meaning of their life is. They don't know what purpose they have here on Earth. Can I just ask, how do you tend to view those people? People in your life that are aimless, directionless, making a mess out of their lives. How do you tend to view them? Maybe you look at somebody so ignorant, making horrible decisions, and you say, I'm glad I'm not like them. They're idiots. Or maybe they run headlong into consequences. Uh, run into serious problems because of their sin, and you think, well, that's what they get. Serves them right. We tend to distance ourselves from people that are like this, partly out of pride and partly because we don't want to share in their unhappiness or misfortune. But God doesn't do that with you and with me. God doesn't distance himself from us. God doesn't look at us and say, well, they're idiots, and it serves them right that they're going through such hardships due to their sins. God chases us down with grace and with compassion and says, no, 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 I want to spare you the penalty that you so richly deserve. True compassion voluntarily attaches itself to somebody else, and that's what God does with you and with me. I'm going to live in the moment of that suffering. I'm going to live in the moment. This is what we're studying with gentle and lowly. I'm going to be there with you. I'm not leaving you. That's the whole point of the book of Jonah. God wants to give grace to people who don't deserve it. That's what grace is. And Jonah is a man who has taught us, really asked us a question in our own hearts about what he's experienced. And I think his question would be this. Does Christ's Bible Church have greater concern about the establishment and maintenance of our own worldly comforts, our selfish desires, and our self-righteous judgmentalism then of the grace of God going forth to save people. I think that's the point of what Jonah's asking, what Jonah's writing for. The reason why Jonah is in the Bible is to hit a square in the head right between the eyes with this question. Do you care deeply about others getting grace, the same grace that you so richly do not deserve, but God has graciously given to you? Are you taking that grace to others? Or do you have some elitist mentality? They don't deserve it. I don't want them to have it. God ends this book by asking a question and we don't get Jonah's response because that's not really the point. This book isn't written to get Jonah's response. This book is written to get your response. This book is written to get your response. It forces you to contemplate your own conclusion. How would you respond to what God's saying in his logic and his reasoning. How would you respond when he asks you, is there somebody in your life that you feel does not deserve you giving them kindness, you giving them grace, you giving them mercy? Is there somebody that you're bitter towards or angry with and you don't think that they should deserve any kindness or mercy that you have? And here, God says you have pity on lesser things and I'm asking you to have pity on greater things because God does. Will you reconcile with people Will you share grace and mercy with people, the same grace that you've been given? Will you harbor bitterness, or will you finally have done with living an angry, bitter lifestyle? The book just ends. I mean, we want everything to be tied up nice and neat in a bow, but that's not the way life works, and that's not the way the Bible works. This is asking us, do you love whom God loves? It's forcing us to ask, what would you do in this situation? I mean, let's go to an extreme example. What would you do if God said, I want you to be a missionary to ISIS? I want you to get up and go over to the Middle East, and I want you to find somebody over there that hates Christians and that's killed them, that's beheaded some of your brothers and sisters, and I want you to tell them that God will give them grace. Would you say, please find somebody else? That's an extreme example. I think God is asking us that question on a daily basis with just people in our families, people in our communities? Would you go to them and give them grace? Or will you stand far off and say, well, they deserve the mess that they're in. They made it. They deserve it. And I'm not going to rush in and save them from it. By the way, we started our study in the book of Jonah by asking who wrote this book. I think Jonah wrote the book and I think we know that he wrote the book because I think he's ultimately going to repent. I don't know if he repents even here, but I think he's ultimately, ultimately going to repent because he's going to write this book and say, I was wrong and my anger and hatred towards this people group, and I don't want anybody else to do what I did. And I want to give you this book to demonstrate how foolish sin truly makes you. One pastor says it this way, in Jonah's book, a fish is sent to help the prophet preach, repent. That's the book of Jonah. So, how do we conclude this book? I think we conclude it perfectly as we, we celebrate communion this morning. You remember what Jonah was angry with God for at the beginning of chapter 4? Jonah said, I hate the fact that you are a compassionate God. Remember, go all the way back up to verse 2. I knew that you were a gracious, compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, you are one who relents concerning calamity. That's a quotation from Exodus 34. You remember Exodus 34? Moses says, I want to see the glory of God, and God says, I will let all of my goodness pass before you. And as all of God's goodness passes before Moses, God declares who he is. And in the declaration... He says, I'm infinitely loving and I want to pardon everyone, but I'm infinitely just and I will never let sin go unpunished. Remember, he says that, right? I am a loving God, extending loving kind- kindness to generation after generation, but I will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. If God is God, he must punish evil, but he desires to be merciful. He's both compassionate and committed to punishing evil so how does this work how do these two not contradict it's almost like God's in a dilemma here I want to give mercy to sinful people who deserve my judgment but they deserve judgment and I can't just turn a blind eye to their sin or just pass out mercy and grace to anybody sin has to be judged but I want to be gracious how is God going to solve that problem the answer is the person and work of Jesus Christ. All of our sin is placed upon him. We, we meditated on this a couple weeks ago in our Bible study. 2 um, Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin. He became a sinner, right? He never actively sinned in his whole life. But Jesus became functionally, and even emotionally feeling guilt and shame, he became sinful man on, on the cross so that God could justly punish him, right? If God is punishing Jesus and Jesus didn't do anything and has no sin, no, none of our sin placed upon him, then God the Father is punishing an innocent person. But God the Father takes an innocent person, places all of our sin in Him, on Him, so that He becomes a guilty person, so that He can be punished in our place, bearing our guilt, so that all of Jesus' innocence, His perfect record of innocence, never sinning once, could be taken and given to us so that God can do exactly what He says. I need to punish sinners but I want to forgive them. How can that be possible? I take sinners' sin, place it into Jesus, punish their sin so that sin has been punished, and now I can just give grace to all who would come to me. Anybody who comes to me, I will never cast out. Now, with open arms, he says, I can give grace to everyone. Anybody who will come, come to me and I'll give grace. Jonah didn't weep over the city of Nineveh, but Jesus wept. He wept over Nineveh. He wept over Jerusalem. He wept over people that did not know they needed to go to him to be forgiven or didn't want to. Jesus would go on to cry out on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. They're ignorant in their sin. They don't even know how sinful they are. So forgive them. Not that they're not guilty, right? Jesus isn't just saying, Father, just give them grace. No, he says they don't know that they're doing wrong things. They're guilty, but I'm asking that you would forgive them. And he answers that request by dying and by being raised from the dead. Jonah went outside of the city of Nineveh to witness its destruction, hoping to see it be destroyed. Remember, Hebrews tells us Jesus went outside the city of Jerusalem, not to see Jerusalem be destroyed, but for him himself, for he himself to be destroyed so that we could be forgiven. Jonah went into the depths of the sea to save sailors. Jesus went into the depths of death itself, God's wrath itself, hell itself, in order to save you, me, and Jonah. Brothers and sisters, we're all Jonah. We're all Jonah. We've all run away from God. We've all decided that our way is better than God's way. And God appoints Worms, fish, winds, storms. God appoints whatever is necessary to chase you down, to hunt you down. He will not relent, just like he didn't relent with Jonah. And he's doing it again this morning. God is chasing you down this morning through this message to say, come to me. Don't wait another day, come to me. I have grace to offer that will satisfy your greatest desires, will forgive all of your sins. As the hymn writer said, Well might the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I see them all and thousands more, but Jehovah knoweth none. My friends, If you know the grace of Jesus Christ and you have come to him for salvation, you have reason this morning to say thank you, to rejoice in him hunting you down, giving you second, third, fourth, 500th chances, and saying, I just want to give you grace. And if you do not know that grace, if you do not know with a shadow of a doubt that you have come to Christ and that you are forgiven of your sins, if you don't know that, I I plead with you, number one, don't participate in communion this morning. These elements are for believers, not for non-believers. But number two, I would say what Jesus would say to you. He would say, come to me. All who are weary over their sin and weary over trying to be good enough, come to me. Stop trying to clean yourself up and make yourself righteous or make yourself good enough to come to me. No, come to me now. The only thing that you need, the only prerequisite you need for coming to Jesus is sin. Come to him with sin and say, please cleanse me now. I want to be done. I want you. And I want you alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your amazing kindness and allowing us to study the book of Jonah. Thank you for giving us this book. Thank you for its amazing lessons that we were able to study together over the, the last few months. Thank you even for the kind of choose-your-own-adventure ending here. Well, what are we going to do? Jonah up in heaven would be asking us right now, Christ Bible Church, learn from my mistakes. Choose now what you're going to do when God appoints you to be the ambassador of grace to those who don't deserve it. Father, thank you for Jonah's example to us of how foolish our sin makes us. It'd be easy to point the finger and say, what an idiot, but the reality is we are just as foolish. How could we possibly not extend grace to those around us when you have lavished so much grace upon us? And so this morning, God, we want to glory in grace. That's what Jonah's doing right now in heaven. That's what he probably did even as he was writing this book just thinking so many times, oh man, I should have been killed. Oh man, God was so kind to allow me to live. Oh man, what a fool I was. And yet God in his grace kept me alive. God, may we glory in grace as we partake of communion together this morning. May it be an act of worship where we say thank you to the one who knows all of our sin and yet throws it onto Jesus so that now, as far as the east is from the west to the bottom of the ocean floor, you know our sins no more. We love you. We thank you. And we pray this all in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.